This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for October 23rd, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today's Gospel lesson, of course, is the summary of the law, but um, there are some really fascinating things about it. One is, if you look at most of Scripture, whenever someone comes and asks Jesus a question, he always doesn't answer the question. He either answers something else altogether different, or he asks them a question. The Pharisees should have known they were in trouble when he immediately went to answer the question. Because that'll always, you know, like this never happens. So he answers the question for them, and, and then at the end of it, then he asks them a question which comes from the Psalms, where David is quoted as calling my Lord, you know, calling the son of David my Lord, how can he be his son? Which it says, they didn't know the answer to that one. And then they didn't ask him any more questions. You almost, people don't think that Jesus has a sense of humor. I mean, you want to see, he says, I'm really tired of bullying these people, they're really obnoxious. (laughs) So let's ask them something. You know, so they aren't going to do that again. Well, the, the real gist, the meat of it, though, is in that summary of the law that we take for granted. We say it every Sunday in our liturgy. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And if you um, uh, look in Deuteronomy, which is where Jesus is quoting from, it also says in strength. Jesus leaves it out. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. And then he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's fascinating about those verses is that we say that every Sunday and we kind of just do it by rote because that's what's there. Do you remember, without looking, it's not an open book test, what we say immediately after that? I'll give you a hint. Lord have mercy. Isn't that interesting, though, that we say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, because what we said is this is what the summary of the way we are supposed to be, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and to love our neighbors ourselves. So I've always thought, I was really glad that immediately the next thing says, oh, good, great, Lord, have mercy. I'm in trouble, because <laughs> you know, as much as I want to do it, I, you know, I, I never seem to quite get there with it. It is the ideal to which we are called. It is what we are to aspire to, and it is also a call of conscience to us to remind us of those times when we haven't attained that. If you can do those things, then you are imperfect with God, because that's what he wants. So that requires a little bit of unpacking, though, doesn't it? Okay, well, so what does it, if I can do that, I'm in good with God. What does it mean then to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind? And if you include the line from Deuteronomy, it's strength. Why do you suppose Jesus didn't say strength? Hmm? Rely on him? Yeah. And thought about that, but that's pretty good. <laughs> Well, what does it mean? You have to go back to the beginning. What is the difference between loving God with your heart or with your soul? 
can't come up with anything, can you? Because all of them point to the same thing, which is love the Lord with all of your being, everything that you are, everything that you are capable of, love the Lord. Love the Lord with all of that, with your the very root of who you are, the very core essence of what it means to be you. Love God. Now, this love word needs some unpacking, too. It doesn't mean to feel all gushy about God. That, that's not the word that's used here. It means the same word that Jesus said when he said, no greater love hath any man but that he lay down his life for a friend. It's the kind of love that is self-giving, that is willing to sacrifice self for the other, that says that the other is more important than I am. And so when we love God in that way, what we're really saying is, God, your will, interestingly enough, be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. Use me to accomplish those things that you made me to do. That's what loving God really ultimately is about. That's what worshiping God really is about. You know, worship isn't just what you do when you come to church. Worship is an attitude toward God of self-giving love, of being willing to sacrifice my wants, my needs, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, everything about my, 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 and saying, Lord, you created me. You know why you created me. Help me to do that which you created me to do and to be that which you created me to be. That's what love is in this context. And so Jesus says that if, if we're going to do that, we need to not only do it um, like when we come to church on Sundays or when we're in a pious mood, but we need to do it with all of ourselves. You know, every moment of every day, it's all-encompassing. Every part of us is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every bit of us. And then he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that one gets confused by a lot of people because they're thinking, I mean, I, quite honestly, I know some of you people don't like yourselves very much. I don't want you loving me that way. I mean, that wouldn't work very well. But really, it, it's more akin to, it might even be better translated, love your neighbor as you would want them to love you. And again, the word love here is not just like friendship or to be nice to or, or a gushy kind of romantic love. It's that self-giving, self-sacrifice. What can I do for you? And I guess a, a good way to, to think of it is it's the same thing basically as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, it's not do unto others as they've done unto you. And it's not love others as they have loved you. Anybody here who's been married for more than a day knows that if you loved the other person the way they loved you, nobody would ever get along. I mean, but interestingly enough, do we then take it to everyone that we encounter? Because that's who our neighbor is. Our neighbor are those people who we run into. I mean, anyone that we encounter in our life is our neighbor. And do we begin to approach it, you know, doing to them as we want them to do to us. Imagine what the world would be like if we did that. Imagine what it would be like to go buy a car. If you loved the car salesman the way you would like him to love you. <laughs> That's difficult. <laughs> I 
Imagine what it'd be like on I-270 when there's a wreck ahead if the other drivers were loving one another the way they want to be loved or were letting people into traffic the way they'd want to be let into traffic when they need it. And, you know, all too typically, it becomes easy for us to say, well, yeah, but the world's just not that way. But the problem with that approach is, is that that's not what it says. If we wait for the other person to treat us a certain way so that we can treat them a certain way, you know what you get? A constant battle. Anybody here feel like we're living in a constant battle? Anybody's been married for <laughs> I don't think you even have to be married for that one, though. I mean, anybody who has a job probably feels like they're in a constant battle. Anybody who has family feels like they're in a constant battle. Um, the biggest issue between human beings is a struggle for power. Who gets to say? And there's much less concern about treating other people the way we would have them treat us and much more concern about what do I deserve and what do they deserve. Have you ever noticed that I tend to deserve much better than they tend to deserve? And that's the problem with the logic of it. But if we really want to live into the reasons why God made us, then, then we need to treat others, to love others, as, as we want them to love us. And we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our whole being. And then he says an interesting thing. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what are the law and the prophets? Sounds like one of those commercials they have on TV for the legal firms. Law and prophets. You know, we represent people. Yeah, the law is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets are all the prophets in the Bible. The only other part of the Old Testament, which was the only Bible that was there when Jesus was there, would be the writings, which he then quotes when he talks about David. Psalms, Proverbs, things like that. If you want to be able to fulfill God's expectations for you, it starts with loving him with your whole being and loving your neighbor as you want them to love you. Now, here's where things get tricky. Which, okay, how do I do that? What would it actually look like if I really tried to live out my life loving God with my entire being and loving my neighbor the way I want them to love me? Do I just end up being a doormat? Do I end up having to go be a monk and wear sackcloth and ashes? I mean... What ha, you know, how does that look? And I can tell you automatically that I know you ask those questions because I've asked those questions too. The minute we ask those questions, we've automatically moved from the realm of, Lord, I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, to, Lord, I'm going to love you. What is it you want exactly? <laughs> I mean, and, and, and automatically you've gotten off the track. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength really means to be able to go into the world and be constantly asking, why am I doing this? Is this for me or is it for God? And I understand the reluctance of people to do that. I mean, the church certainly has 2,000 years of abusing it. You know, there are a lot of churches who want to tell you that if you want to love God, you should do as the pastor says. Um, that's pretty self-serving if you ask me, but... <laughs> um, 
because the pastor is a human being too. That Jesus didn't say, if you love God, do as the church says, did he? Matter of fact, he didn't have one at that point, did he? What he said was, listen to God. You know, my sheep know me and they know my voice and they follow me. When we do that, it's not to follow somebody's idea of what you ought to do. It's to follow what God wants you to do, to listen to him. And in each moment, say, Lord, what did, why did you create me for this moment? I know you don't think that when you're sitting there and your boss is telling you what a lousy job you did and you better you know, get, do better or else things are going to go south and it's really terrible and all those sorts of things. Or, or your co-worker is goofing off or any of those things. It tends to not be what comes into your mind right at that moment. Or your kid brings home that zero and you know, that they didn't turn in the paper or whatever. I mean, none of those things tend to come into our mind. But imagine how it would begin to shift conversations if we say, Lord, you created me for this moment. I would not be here had you not created me. Why did you create me for this moment? What is it that you would have me to do? It takes a very different perspective on things, doesn't it? And if we took that even further with our boss or our spouse or kids or coworkers and said, how would I want to be treated if I, had, if I were them? You know, how would I want them to, how would I want someone to respond to me out of that? All of a sudden, everything, the dynamics begin to change. You know, one of the things I learned, when I was a parts manager for an auto dealership. And I went to a conflict resolution for customers course. It actually was one of the best courses I've ever taken. The bad part about it is that um, my boss and everybody in the dealership started sending anybody who was irate to me because <laughs> I had taken the class and I was, I was the expert. But I learned something about it, which is that if you actually are interested in what the person's saying, they really care, it's really hard for them to stay angry. Because why would you be angry at somebody that's on your side once, or at least wants to understand, even if they don't? I mean, that doesn't make sense. You know, please try this with your kids or your spouse sometime. They'd be ranting and raving and go, does that really bother you? I mean, you know, why does it bother you? I don't understand. It's amazing. If you stay calm and, and just care how the whole tone of things just drops and suddenly people become reasonable. Now, it would be great if we could say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to start loving my neighbor as I would have them love me as soon as they do it. Now, the world's been trying that for thousands of years. How do you think we're doing? You see, when Pliny the Elder said about the Christians when he wrote his tome, he said, oh, those Christians, how they love one another, that's what he meant. He said, they don't treat people the way most people treat people. You know, there's something different about them. There's something that makes you want to be around them. I mean, they're, they're pleasant But it really requires us to do a simple thing, which is to surrender our own hopes and dreams, our own will, for God's purposes, and to treat others the way we would want to be treated. I'm end with a story. There was a friend of mine, um, actually it wasn't a friend of mine, it was a dad of a girl I dated once, 
And he worked for AT&T in the 60s and 70s, and that was a good job in the 60s and 70s. I mean, he had great benefits and great insurance and good you know, pension plan. I mean, nice salary, and, and he had a really good, he went around into people's houses installing or fixing telephones. That was in the day when you couldn't go buy them. You know, people had them. And he started to make a little extra money because he had now his third child. He started selling um, aluminum-framed windows. You all remember those? You know, the aluminum-framed windows they put in houses? And he would do that on weekends and at night. And, so, and, and it got to where he was doing so, and then he would install them. It got to be where he was so busy that it was going to be a problem to have a full-time job and to do this. And so he decided to quit his job at AT&T and go into business for himself doing this. And I said, wow, aren't you scared? I mean, to give up all that security and, and say, he said, well, no, not really. He said, I felt it was what the Lord wanted me to do. Number one, didn't really know why he wanted me to do it, but that was what he wanted me to do. And when I asked him, well, what happens if this goes bankrupt? He said, it was very clear to me that I'm 32 years old, I've got three kids, and if I go bankrupt, I can start all over again. I'm not that old. That's what you all think about it, isn't it? And yet, it's amazing. How many times has Donald Trump been bankrupt? Six, something like that? I bet you'd trade your retirement plan with his. <laughs> I don't know if he, God had anything to do with his or not, but I don't know him. But. And so I said, wow, that's just amazing. So you were perfectly willing to do this because you thought God wanted you to do it. And then, and then if, if, if that didn't work out, you would just start again. He said, well, yeah, there's always a possibility I misunderstood him. And I said, what, how did you get to where you could do that. I mean, I, I was just amazed that somebody would be like this. And, and he was a Southern Baptist. This is what's interesting. You know, we tend to think of Southern Baptists, oh, they're judgmental. And this guy was the least judgmental person I've ever met in my entire life. And actually, I got to know quite a few Southern Baptists who weren't in the least bit judgmental. So don't label all of them that way because a few people get on TV and do dumb things. Um, and he said, well, I do it because I'm called to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and all my strength. And I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. And he said, when I started living by that principle in my 20s, life changed. I no longer saw the, the glass as half empty. I always saw it as half full because God doesn't have half empty glasses. I mean, and and he, he had a great illustration. He said, before God created the world, if he looked at the world as the glass is half empty, do you think he would have created it? Because there wouldn't have been anything in it. I mean, the glass would have been totally empty. He said, God doesn't do half empty. For God, it's always half full. Imagine what that would be like in today's world if we began to look at the economy and said, hey, the economy is half full. It's a great opportunity coming up. Instead of, oh my goodness, I'm losing money. I mean, that's a difference in attitude. It changes our whole perspective in life, but it requires us to do something very deliberate. And I'll encourage you to think about this week. When you go out today and tomorrow and the next day and you deal with all the people and, that you know and don't know that you end up talking to, and, and you just go through life, when you start feeling those 
anxious moments, those angry moments, those frustrating moments, those nervous moments, ask yourself that fundamental question. God, you created me for this moment. Why did you put me here? What is it that you want? How can I fulfill your will? Because the most remarkable thing happens if you're able to do that. And that's that you truly become you. Think about it. Who made us? Well, is, is he dumb? Did he make a mistake? I mean, whoa, I didn't mean to do that one. I mean, Where did that come from? I mean, he, he knows why he made you. So wouldn't he lead you in ways that would help you to be the real you? The you he wants you to be? That's really the purpose. And, and if you really became who you really were called to be, you think that would be bad? I remember that probably one of the greatest moments of my whole life, because, I mean, many of you heard my story. I wasn't the um, most pristine of teenagers, I guess I should say. If, if there, I always tell John, my son, I doubt that you can come up with anything to get into that I haven't already tried. Um, so, so I highly recommend that you don't go down that road, because I did a lot of stupid things. He said, now he's, got, he's going to be 15 here next, in a couple of weeks. And he says, Daddy, that's why you're so smart, was you learn from all those stupid things you did. I realized that's what I told him, so I guess I can't really say anything about it. But, but he's right. I mean, I did a lot of stupid things. But the amazing part about it is, is that all the stupid things I did weren't really in character with who I am. I mean, how many times as a young person did you go along with the crowd and do what everybody else was doing because they were doing it, even though it wasn't very comfortable for you? And how many times did you get sucked into that, that way of living? How many times have you bought car 